last week was amazing. And I, I love that we're all back in here together. Um, but I love the people and the worship and the people and the journey through Jerusalem and the people and the Monday Thursday service and the people and the children and the people. And the, it was amazing. But I don't know, sometimes I feel like I can take the place of one of Jesus' disciples, and I can only imagine after one of those really glorious days, the disciples went, so what do we do now? Sermon on the Mount, now what? (laughs) Walking on water, okay. (laughs) What about tomorrow? What about next week? How do we work this in to our normal jobs, our real families? How do, how do we fit this, this whole great mountaintop experience like Easter at DBC? How, how do we fit that into everyday living? And it would be fair to say of the mountaintop that we enjoyed last week, how do we fit that into everyday living like families? And... We call this series, It's Complicated. We had a, a, a funeral service this past week, and, and you know, in funerals and weddings, we, we always try to, to really go out of the way to help a family because they're stressed enough. And so I said, well, tell me a little bit about the family so that we can make sure we kind of get everything in order. And they just said, it's complicated. <laughs> okay? Weddings, it's complicated. Well, that's okay. One of the moms can sit there, and another mom can sit there, and another mom can sit there, and another mom can sit there. It's complicated. When I first started doing PhD work at the seminary, I was teaching a a doctoral seminar in family life, and we used a book by George Barna called The Future of the American Family. Now, I, I first started doing that work in 1994. This book was published in 1992. I don't say that to make you feel old. We all know if we're old. But 1992, Barna uh, uh, research revealed that according to popular opinion, there were 26 different living arrangements that at least somebody considered family. 26 different living arrangements. Now, the clear winner was mom, dad, two kids, a dog, a picket fence. That, that almost universally people said, yep, family. And then we went to mom, dad, no kids, and a little less. I don't know why a mom and dad, no kids is not a family, but some people. And then we, we, we described other kinds of, I didn't, they did, other kinds of families, all the way down to a, a mom, a single mom, either by divorce or widow or never married, raising kids, definitely a family. Oddly enough, a little less uh, percentage said that a dad, divorced, widowed, single, never married, raising kids, uh, uh, apparently the dad with kids is a little less likely to be considered a family than a mom with kids. And then we got all the way down to a bunch of people kind of living in the same proximity because back in 1992, friends was a really big deal. And they said, well, that's got to be a family. And I think maybe 10% or so said definitely a family. 26 different living arrangements in 1992. It's complicated. 
And now we're not sure what a family is. We're not sure what gender is. We're not sure what a man is, what a, a woman is. We're uh, not sure what a family's supposed to be. We're not sure what a community's supposed to be. We're not sure what a, a, a church is supposed to be. I can only imagine if he did that research today, how many different living arrangements somebody would describe as family. It's just me and the cats, family. <laughs> and, and it is true that, that a single adult is a family, that a widowed adult is a family. That, that a, a kid that, that, that left home at an early age and has been scraping out a life all on his own. He's, he's a family that, that we as a church certainly are a network of families of all different constellations. So it's fair to say it's complicated. And so what I want to do over the uh, next four weeks or so is to, to talk about families and, and faith and culture. And it, it is complicated. Our, our, our culture is kind of a nutty place. It's just sort of, you know, families have always been dysfunctional. <laughs> Look at Adam and Eve. I mean, that's the first one. <laughs> they got sideways in a hurry. And, and to say that that generations of families have, have ever really been any better, it, it, not so much. But what kind of has changed lately is that we used to sort of depend on the culture to help us stay on the rails with our families, right? We could sort of trust the school to, 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 to walk a, a, a pretty good line, supporting the family and, and sharing in some of the lessons. We could uh, kind of trust the entertainment industry to, to sort of police themselves and say, hey, the, the, the really adult stuff doesn't need to show up on TV or, or anything else until a certain hour of the night, or, or this crosses a line, or this is a bridge too far. We, we kind of could used to trust the entertainment industry to help us out. We kind of used to have a government that was run by adults. We used to say, okay, well, the family's always been dysfunctional. The family's always been a little bit screwy, a little bit off the rails. But, but we could depend on the, the school to kind of pull us back in, the government to kind of pull us back in, the entertainment industry to sort of inform uh, uh, some, some values. Because basically the, the purpose of a family, right, to, to pass along faith and value and meaning and, and, and language and, and culture to kind of help us. And these, these other entities outside of the family, we can say, hey, we may be a little off the rails, but they're going to help us. That train's left the station. Now we only see families in media that are, that are idiotic. Parents are buffoons. The kids know way more. Uh, the, uh, you, you have married people who want to be single and single people who want to be married. And the, the, the whole presentation of the family is just way crazy. It's, it's almost as if the culture is against families these days. 
It's almost as if the, as if the government is against families these days. They're, it's almost as if the entertainment industry is against families, if the educational cycle is against families. It, it, sometimes it, it feels like uh, for the first time in, in the history, certainly, of the United States, we are in conflict with these things over trying to protect families, trying to, to value families, and, and certainly as a, as a church to, to call together uh, families, because from the earliest days, that's what communities did. They, they gathered networks of families, and, and if, if I had never done this before, if I had never seen this before, if, if my, my first child, and, and I might call a, another parent who's had kids, and they say, don't worry about that, worry about that, don't worry about that, worry about that, that, that we, we, we come together in, in networks of families. Because after all, the family is sort of a building block of culture. And a strong foundation of families is, is sort of about pulling together uh, the things that sustain us when uh, the, the, the winds of culture, the circumstances that we're in, the job situation, the marriage situation, the relationship situation, the, the kids situation, when those things are, are, are kind of off the rails, the, the, the strong family foundation, the, the things that, that are basically the, the underpinnings, or, or in New Orleans we'd say the pilings under the foundation, the, the things that, that make sure that it's not going to shift in a hurricane, the, the things that make sure that families are going to be okay because it's, 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 it's a crazy thing, and it's complicated. Now, a few confessions and, and a couple of assumptions. Number one, I need this. I know that some of your families are being rocked right now. Some of you are single and wondering if you're ever going to uh, be in a place where you would say, I'm, I'm moving more towards that mom, dad, 2.6 kids, white picket fence, and a dog. Uh, some of you are divorced or recently divorced or widowed. Some of you are, are strangers in your own house with your spouse or your kids. Some of your kids are off the rails. I, I need this because there's, there's drama going on even in my own family. Second confession, I, I'm not here to throw rocks. My, my purpose in this series is not in any way to, to say uh, you're bad or you're judged or you're this or you're that because this is your family situation. This is your drama. My, my purpose is to let you know you're not alone. Second confession, my words probably aren't going to change anything. They, they don't. I'm, 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 I'm just a, a pastor. And while uh, my words may be entertaining and my words may be informative and my words may be this or that or the other, my words aren't going to change anything. Only the Holy Spirit can change things. Only the, the, the sense of God moving among us can, can change, can bring about families in our uh, change in our families. And, and because of the change in our families, the change in our culture, only God can do that. Third confession, prayer works. But it works even better if it's augmented by a couple of things, some self-discipline, some rational thought, some kindness towards each other, prayer in action. So, so prayer does impact change, but it's, it's sort of like the disciples, right? Prayer, and then God tells you to do something, and you say, well, I prayed. Well, I told you to do something. 
So that. So confessions. I, I, I need this. I, I'm not here to beat anyone up. My words don't change anything. Prayer does change things when it's augmented by action, discipline, uh, humility, submission to one another. Now a couple of assumptions. One, families matter. Families are the bedrock of culture. He, he designed it that way. God designed it that way. And even if, if you're not, not a, a believer that God really has done anything, just we, we naturally gravitate towards that. It's like uh, uh, groups of people kind of cluster around values or around geographical location or around availability of food or water or, or whatever. Families have always clustered together in communities. And then when churches Churches started kind of being churches. We, we clustered together in churches to, to uh, share uh, pain, to share challenges, to share victories, to, to share uh, with each other. That's, that's the way that it works best in culture. Because again, our, our, our job is to pass along to another generation values, beauty, all the artifacts of culture, right? When we talk about culture, it's, uh, culture is a, a collection of our art and our economy and our education and our family structure and our governance and our entertainment. That, that's what culture is and all the artifacts of culture. It's our job to help uh, our, our children and our children's children to, to kind of place some meaning or, or place some value or to, to try to make sense of all of that. And in a culture that's gone a little bit wonky, that, that makes it a little harder. All the more reason for us to pull together as families because it's complicated. So what I'd like to do today is to talk about the foundation. Now, you all told me that you liked all the pictures that I showed you in the last series that your attention challenged. Don't look at the snowman, look up here. This is a foundation stone, not the foundation stone, but a foundation stone in Jerusalem. Now, the foundation stone is the rock or the top of what the Bible calls Mount Moriah that's enshrined now in the gold-topped icon of the skyline of Jerusalem that's known as the Dome of the Rock, the, the Muslim shrine. The, the, the thing they call the foundation stone is in the middle of that. But if you look at the western wall or the wailing wall and then go sort of to the left, there's a set of glass doors that lead into a rabbi's tunnel, they call it. And deep into that tunnel are these stones which date all the way back to Solomon's temple and were built uh, uh, way back then, 600 tons apiece, stacked on top of one another to provide the foundation for what today we call the Western Wall or the, the Western Wall of the Temple Mount. And the guides take you down to, to this uh, place, and, and they talk about how long that stone has been here, how perfectly it is carved out of rock, and how much weight it supports. That on top of that rests a neighborhood in Jerusalem, ironically in the Muslim quarter, but it's still there. So I want to study the foundation and suggest a couple of stones 
of my own. And the first one would be to set goals. How are we as individuals in relation to God's truth going to conduct our family life? And I'm not just talking about moms and dads. I'm talking about single adults. How, how will you conduct your dating relationships? How will you conduct your, your feelings? Uh, uh, widowed adults, how will you conduct life? Uh, married adults, how will you organize? How will you move forward? What, are, what will the things that you say to your kids and to others are, are valuable, are beautiful, our governance, our economy? What, what will you place value on? And how will you respond to the culture? There's, I mentioned back when I did the book, The Issachar Factor, that uh, one of the, the great books on culture was Richard Niebuhr's book, Christ and Culture. And he suggests a number of, of stances that we can take uh, regarding the culture. And as we set goals for family, yes, this is the first time David Allen Coe has ever been quoted in church probably the first time he's ever been to church. But still, I like the statement. It's not the beauty of the building. It's the construction, the foundation that's going to last the, the, over, over time. And, and that foundation is built brick by brick. And part of that brick is saying, okay, the culture is not really helping us right now. How will we respond to the culture? Will we imitate it? We want to be just like it? Will we irritate it? We're going to be in opposition to it. Everything that's out there, the music is bad, the government's bad, the this is bad, this is bad. It's all awful. It's all just of the devil. Let's just, let's just isolate from it. Let's, let's, let's not have anything to do with it. We can irritate the culture. We can integrate into culture. We can isolate from culture. Or maybe we can illuminate you want them again, irritate, imitate, integrate, isolate, illuminate. Maybe there's a place where we can simplify our foundations over this complicated uh, relationship between culture and families. Maybe we can solidify, simplify our foundation and illuminate, as Jesus told us, being salt and light. So what I'd like to do is to cross over to the letter that Paul wrote to Ephesians, to the, to the church at Ephesus. And I need to tell you a little bit about Ephesus. Uh, Paul wrote a number of letters while he was in jail in Rome, somewhere around 61 AD. And he wrote Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians all at once. They, they were all sent out from prison about the same time. And, and Philippians was sent to the northern area of Greece, and Colossians and Galatians were sent to sort of Central Asia Minor, and Ephesus was on the coastline of what we call Turkey today. If you look on a map, it's directly east from Athens across the Aegean Sea. And so it was a, a pretty important place. And, and I'm not trying to be your tour guide, but, but, but their culture was a whole lot like ours. Okay, it was a metropolitan city. 
It was a, 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 a wonderfully large city. There's a, a Colosseum that's still there that, seats 20, that seated then 20,000 people. Think of the basketball arena downtown. It, it seats about the same number. And this was uh, when the, the numbers were a lot smaller in the years than they are now. And it was commercial, it was a port city, and it was a, a, a center of religious worship with the temple to Diana, one of the seven wonders of the world. And so it was a, a pretty influential city. They claimed to have wisdom, they claimed to have religion, they claimed to have morality, even though one writer says that morally speaking, the best thing for Ephesus is that they drown the whole lot of them. That was his statement. We would call it morally bankrupt because of the, the temple prostitution and the serial adultery and the, the sex trafficking and some of the, the things that we just kind of cringe. But that was Ephesus. And I, I can only imagine that the people in Ephesus looked around and said, yeah, culture is just not doing well. But there was one thing that was really interesting that was going on in, in Ephesus, and, and that's spiritual revival. Paul planted a church there, and, and people started catching on, and, and other people started catching on, and, and the, the Jesus lifestyle started catching on, and, and all of a sudden these pockets of people were, were getting this grace thing, were understanding that, 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 that the paradigm has changed, that it's no longer us trying to please God, earn God, sacrifice to God, do tricks for God. It, it's not about that. It's, it's by grace are you saved through faith, he says in the chapter 2 of this letter. So, the revival is starting to make a difference in the culture. Paul eventually got run out of town. You know why? Because his message had so impacted the ability of the silversmiths to make idols that the commerce was cratering, the, 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 the GDP was cratering because they could no longer sell idols because people who were becoming Christ followers were going, we don't need any of that, don't have room for that, don't have time for that, and they can't sell any idols. They can't traffic at the temple. The temple prostitutes got nothing to do. And they ran Paul out of town because the message of the gospel was so impacting the culture. I'm going to say that again just in case you were looking at the snowman. The message of the gospel was so impacting culture that it moved the whole needle. So Paul writes this letter, and he's saying, hey, good job. You guys are doing great. But let me encourage you to keep on doing great. Let me encourage you not to lose focus here. Let me encourage you to see what it is to be a disciple, see what it is to, to invest in your families, to show you what it is to be on target, because they're, they're going to keep on resisting this movement, just like today. And so he said to them in Ephesians 2, he says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. Now you're going, that needs a little bit of context. 
So let me give you a little bit of context. Whenever Paul wrote a letter, he followed a similar pattern. He would give you a little bit of how to think for a while, and then he would kind of tell you how to behave. So he would tell you what to believe, and then he would say, here's what you do with it. It's kind of like the disciples, Sermon on the Mount, great, what next? Walk on the water, awesome, what now? Miraculous catch of fish, what do we do tomorrow? And so Paul, in all of his letters, and usually it's pretty convenient. In Philippians, it's four chapters, it's two, and then two. Galatians, half and half. Ephesians, three chapters of what to think and three chapters of what to do about it. So in chapter 4, he turns a corner from what he said about belief. And and you remember, uh, I've already said it this morning, that in chapter 2 in this letter, he said, keep the paradigm straight. It's not about works. It's not about doing stuff. It's about receiving the grace that God has made possible through the crucified Christ. He said, it's for by grace are you saved through faith. And even that is not of yourselves. You can't conjure up your own faith. God gives you that faith so that you may embrace this message. But then in verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10, he says, now keep this in mind. You are God's workmanship. He created you in Him to do good works. Here's what you're going to do with it. And so back uh, in chapter 2, he said that, and then in chapter 4, he comes back around to it. And and so in chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, stay with it. Going to be some opposition. Then he reminds them of everything he said for the first three chapters, and then in verse 17 of chapter 4, he says, now I say this and I testify this in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. The Gentiles was kind of a catch-all word for everybody who is not a, a, a believer in Christ or a Jewish person. So the Jewish people, he, Paul just considered them a work in progress. They're, they're eventually going to understand that Jesus was the Messiah, according to Paul. Uh, but the Gentiles, those were the, the pagans who lived in all these places where he's starting churches. He said, he said, there needs to increasingly be a difference in the way you live as compared to how they live. Spoiler alert, he's talking about the culture. And he he might as well be talking in 2022. He says there there really ought to be a difference in the way that we conduct our families. There really ought to be a difference in the way that we conduct our singlehood, our, our widowhood, our retirement, our work, our work life balance. There there really ought to be a difference. And that difference, like in Ephesus, that affected the silver idol-making trade, it ought to move the needle in the culture. So he said there, there ought to be a difference. And so for the first seven verses there, 17 through 24, he talks about uh, ought to be a difference in understanding, and there's a, a comparison that's set up. And then in verse 25 through uh, chapter 5, he, he, he talks about some characteristics, both negative and positive. These, these are things that people who walk in faith shouldn't be doing. 
These are things that people who walk in faith should be doing. So he's, he's continuing on the contrast there. And you can read the, the list, and uh, he says, uh, talks about anger, talks about lying, talks about idolatry, talks about sexual immorality, talks about uh, uh, relationships. In verse 32 in chapter 4, the last verse, he, he says, so be kind one to another. So he talks about kindness. But there's something really interesting that he does through there. He uses a lot of ink to talk about words. Uh, you, you may miss it if you're not looking carefully. Around here we have a, a phrase that we, we say that, that language shapes culture. That, that the words that we say impact what we're about as a church. That's why we often talk about our, our mission statement. We are passionately becoming more like Jesus, and we are transforming. We, we are committed, convicted. We are dedicated to the transformation of our homes, our church, our community, and our world. How do we do that? We love God. We love people. We make disciples. We make a difference. Language shapes culture. What does it mean to love God? It means we worship Him. It means that we are devoted to Him both privately and corporately. What does it mean to love people? It means that we gather in groups, and we encourage each other, and we hear each other out, and we console each other in our Bible study groups, our serve teams, our, our life groups. What does it mean to make disciples? It means we are acutely aware that these children that will be up here in just a few minutes, that if they don't get it, it won't get God. That if they don't somehow apprehend this, this story that we're trying to pass on, that, that if we don't make disciples, we're the last generation that will ever sit in here. And what is it to make a difference? We don't want the 200,000 cars a month that drive past this church to look over there and go wonder what they're up to. We want them to know that we are change agents, that we are, are alive and we are at work in our homes, our church, our community, and our world. Doing what? Transforming because we're passionately becoming more like Jesus and we want to love God, love people, make disciples, make a difference. Language shapes culture and language shapes your families. Just me saying that triggered some of you to remember hurtful words that you heard in the home. Maybe you were a child, and there was this phrase that your dad used over and over. Maybe you were a sibling, and there was this hurtful uh, stance that a, that a brother or a sister took. Maybe in a marriage, maybe in a grief situation, maybe in an extended family, you, you're, you've thought about words that particularly wounded. Maybe you thought about words that helped. I was a chaplain for a high school football team in New Orleans, and I remember uh, uh, this, this head coach of this particular Christian high school there in New Orleans that he'd won like 26 state championships out of the last 32. And I, I was always fascinated as to how he motivated his players. And one day he ran over to a, an offensive lineman and he grabbed him by the face mask and he pulled him to me and I said, this is going to be ugly. And he shouted at the top of his lungs, the kind of play you're making is the reason we keep winning state championships. And the whole team heard him. And I'm going... Those are words that he will never forget. Those are words that build up. Well, look at what Paul did here. Chapter 4, 
verse 24, put on the new self created after the likeness of God, true righteousness. Verse 25, put away falsehood, words. Be angry, but don't sin, words. Verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, words. Verse 31, put away clamor, slander, words. Verse 4 of chapter 5, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving words. Chapter 5, verse 6, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of those things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of obedience. You want to simplify the foundation of your home, watch your words. Set your goals. How are we going to face the culture, irritate it, imitate it, integrate, isolate, illuminate, set those goals, but watch your words. Simplify the foundation. And so with that comparison, now he approaches this particular verse, and and the long introduction was just so that you see it's not about alcohol. Okay, yes, cultural problem then. Yes, cultural problem now. But that's not what he's talking about here. He's setting up a comparison between families, individuals, disciples who walk in a way that that honors God and who don't. And so verse 15 of chapter 5, he picks up his theme. He says, so look carefully at how you walk. He'd just gone through all the stuff I just went through. And he said, so be careful how you walk. Don't walk like unwise people, but as wise. Hear the comparison? Make the best of your time, because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. What is the will of God? That all would be drawn to Him. That all would be illuminated by His teaching. That all would would walk how? Not like they're crazy with drink, but they're filled with the Spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit, God's presence among us, then God's presence among us now. So, so the foundation of the family is to be a Spirit-filled family. And so he says, you address one another. Um, did anybody in here pass basic English grammar? Anybody? Good, good. You can instruct me here nicely. So there is a, what's called an imperative here, a command. Be filled with the Spirit. That's the only command in the, the box. All of the rest, there's four participles that follow that. Participle, you see what I did there? Good word participle, right? Yeah. Ask her what a participle is. So these are are things that support the command. So he says, here's the command. Be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another with worship. So what we did in here, you'll be encouraged. You can be a Spirit-filled family. Your kids will watch you worship. uh, You will be with other people who are worshiping. Be filled with the Spirit by addressing each other in songs and hymns, spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart. So addressing each other, singing with each other, making melody. Those are participles that support it. Giving thanks. So you see what he did there. 
And, and He's walking us through the way to simplify the foundation, both as individual disciples, but also as family. He's saying this is wisdom as opposed to foolishness. This is gratitude uh, as opposed to ingratitude. This is being filled with the Spirit instead of filled with some uh, cultural imitation like wine or all the other things that we try to fill up today. So he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he left one more participle out there dangling. See what I did there? Dangling participle. Little grammar joke. He says there's mutual submission involved. I love this quote. It's, it's not known who said it. Love your family, spend time, be kind, serve one another. Don't make room for regrets. Tomorrow is not promised. Today is short. In the last verse in the passage, he says, submitting to one another. It's a participle. It's, it's be filled with the Spirit by addressing each other in worship, by singing, by giving thanks, by showing gratitude, by mutually submitting to each other. Yes, I will talk about what he said when he said, wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. I'll get to that in the next couple of weeks. But here he says, you got to get this or you're kind of not playing. We mutually submit to each other. Submitting to each other is a way that we demonstrate being filled with the Spirit of God. Be filled with the Spirit. There's the command. Worship Thanksgiving, addressing, submitting. Now, this is complicated because it's, it's a command that I submit to my wife. Now, I do submit to my wife, not because I'm afraid of her, though I am, but because if I do that, catch this, out of reverence for Christ. It's not about her behavior. It's not about her beliefs. When she submits to me, it's not about my behavior. It's not about my beliefs. It is about the relationship that we have with Christ. It's about the, 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 the gratitude being filled with the Spirit. It's about an understanding that He has forgiven us that He has changed the paradigm, that, that no longer do I live under the law, no longer do I live according to the rules, no longer do I have to fear that, that God is going to watch my behavior. Okay, Alan, that's, that's too far. You're off the island. But that I am in His family, and as a result of me being in His family, I want to serve my wife. I want to serve my daughter. I want to serve my son. I want to serve my church. Mutual submission. It's not you're a doormat now and, and you're just kicked like a can down the road. It's that we have such a full living color relationship with Christ that we can't help it. We are filled with the Spirit, so we worship. We are filled with the Spirit, so we give thanks. We are filled with the Spirit, so we gather together. We are filled with the Spirit, so we submit to one another. You remember what he said back there? For this is the will of God. For this is the will of God. 
submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And remember that at the same time, he wrote the letter to the Philippians. And in Philippians chapter 2, he said, you should have this attitude in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who although he was God, he didn't regard that godness as a thing that he would hold on to, but he emptied himself. He became a bondservant. He was made in the likeness of man. He became fully human. He submitted to God. He submitted to us. And we are to follow His example out of reverence for Christ. One more thing and I'm done. There's an old joke uh, about a guy who loves, loves, loves his wedding video. Mandy, he loves his wedding video. But he likes to play it backwards. So that at the very end of the video, he is backing out of the church a free man. <laughs> Don't laugh, that's sick. But it's sort of our, our world. I, I don't want my circumstances, so I want to change them. I want to do over. But, but what I, I hope you hear of this whole series, and especially today, when we simplify our foundations, is that there is no do-over, and we don't need one. I don't have to wonder what I should have done, what I would have done, what I could have done with my kids, with my marriage, with my dating life, with my student habits or not. I, I don't have to live with regrets over a marriage that didn't work out or decisions that were poor because I have given those things to the cross. I don't have to back out. I can look forward and see what God wants to do with me today. I can get up and say, I want to be filled with the Spirit today. Yes, I've done things in the past, and God has separated those things as far as the east is from the west. I don't have to back out. I don't have to get a mulligan. I don't have to have a do-over because I am living life in the Spirit. And my, my hope for you, my, my assignment for you, is that you would say, okay, this day, Easter was wonderful, but it was kind of lost, but, but here we are on this day. What is it to simplify the foundation of my family? What is it to simplify the foundation of discipleship? What is it to simplify my relationship, even with my church? It is to be filled with the Spirit. How do I do that? I invite Christ into my heart. I begin to live as a Christ follower, and every single day He fills me up as much as I'll let Him on that particular day. You are filled with the Spirit, not because you had a, a, an additional experience, but because you asked Christ to come into your heart. And it's never the same. And your family's not the same. And before we talk about wives submit to your husbands and children obey your parents and husbands love your wives, before we talk about any of that, we have to talk about what it is to simplify the foundation by being filled with the Spirit. Joshua had seen a lot of stuff. <laughs> he had just walked in the wilderness for a long, long time, and at the end of his life and at the end of his ministry, he said to the whole nation, you guys do what you got to do. But through all the experiences I've had, 
all the pain and all the victory, all the things that I've had, here is my declaration. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I would pray that you would declare that, that you would pray, that you would expect a miracle, that, that you wouldn't think that your situation is just too far gone, too hopeless. That it would be redeemed. Would you pray with me? God, thank you for you. Thank you for an amazing message that there is hope even when we don't feel like there's much hope in our families. Thank you that we can come together and sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and that we can give thanks, that we can be filled with the Spirit, that we can submit mutually to one another. God, we're grateful. As we talk about families, God, my prayer is that you'll do miracles among the families that are hurting, the kids that are kind of wayward, the marriages that don't feel like they're going to last much longer, the loneliness among the widows and the widowers, the single adult wondering if that will always be their status. So, Father, speak into those families. Fill them with the Spirit that they would know you. And Father, if there's one here who doesn't know you as Savior, who has not become a Jesus follower, my prayer is that they would find somebody in a green shirt, find a pastor, find a friend, and say, I can't wait any longer. This has to happen today. And let us talk to you about what that means. Father, we love you. We pray that you'll accept our praise and the praise of these precious children. In Jesus' name, amen.